Blog Talk Radio. This is All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio. The talk show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just... I love that. Call our guest line at any time during the live show at area code 646-727-3235. And let's talk about wine. Again, the phone number to call is 646-727-3235. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Oh, yeah. Yes? All right, all right. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. They're happy. Good the job. humidity's down. And uh, so they're, people are happy sitting out there now. Not quite as hot. Yeah. That time of the year. That time of yeah. the year, we start, we start getting, at least there's some change to the to the air. <laughs> yeah, we can detect it. I stepped up to get the paper in the morning. I'm thinking, ooh, a little, little chill. I might start getting dressed more to go outside. So, hmm. Uh, <clears throat> welcome to the show. Yeah, it is Big good stuff. Uh, 7:01 p.m. on 10/4. That's October 4, 2018. If you want to talk to us, call us 646-727-3235. You know, I have that number memorized more than I have the number, the host calling number. I just, you know, the host <laughs> pin number. I, I just, I, I know the guest yep. calling number, but the host pin, I just, you know, it's. Yeah, so. um, <laughs> it's an issue with me for some reason. I don't know why. But uh, <laughs> uh, you got Mike and Ron tonight, and uh, we've got some stuff to tell you about wine uh, and uh, comments, as always, about things. And so, what's happening with you, Mike? Anything interesting and exciting? No, it's just work. <laughs> Yeah, I know. No, me just retired. No, uh, that's all right. Wish that we're, we're working. And I, yeah, but just enjoy it. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what everybody says. So. Yeah, I'm trying to. Trying to. Same old, same old. You, you said I. You know, I've been missing your radio program. Uh, that's still happening every Thursday, isn't it? Yes, uh, yeah, three to three p.m. three p.m. to five p.m. and uh, yeah, it was kind of interesting Blue. earlier because of, uh, Sky Blue Radio. Um, I had my, you know, I get a playlist going for at least the first hour because you know I can always change it, but just to get right. going, so I'm not, I don't sit in front of you and go, oh my gosh, what am I going to play? I just line stuff <laughs> up, you know. So and it kind of it kind of changed the genre around a little bit. You know, I play one type of music, another type of music, you know. That kind of thing. And then I get somebody in chat and it's like, oh, I really like the heavy metal stuff and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, man. And then so I played one and then somebody else jumps in there like, oh, man, I really like this stuff. And then somebody else jumps in. I go, okay, so now all of my miscellaneous stuff is now being wiped out. <laughs> my timing is all <laughs> off now. <laughs> oh, man. It's heavy metal. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank you for listening, but, uh, you know. <laughs> but, you know. I had a plan. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Really. Now I'm sitting here jumping around trying to find it, which I was trying to not yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, that kind of changed changed the course of everything, but you know, it, it all worked out, and uh, it was good to hear, hear some of the tracks I listened to, and I go, "Wow, that's what that's what you want." Okay. Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Maybe next week, but uh, yeah, just filled the rest of it with that. So, uh, ooh, ooh, some good stuff. Listeners from around the world on your show, anyway. So, yeah, you know, yeah, and they have they have different tastes. I mean, uh, every everybody, you know, probably the person in who's the regular from South Africa somewhere uh, keeps wow. listens every week, and and you know he's probably not used to this, or maybe he likes it. I don't know, but uh, you know, it's just never can tell. But um, next week it'll probably be a whole different thing again. So it's just yeah, just different. So. Some indie music or, or something like that, you know, it's, it's, you know, like yeah. jazz. You never know. I don't know. Yeah. But if y'all out there, you want to listen to it, do you have any requests or type of music you haven't listened to for a while and you want to hear a tune or two, yeah. then tune in to Mike. That's uh, Sky Blue Radio and um, yeah. things on all the time. But Mike's on from 3 to 5 every yeah. Thursday. So. Yeah, thank you. And wow. He, he can chat with awesome. you and all that yeah. stuff, too, so. Um, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. It's good stuff. So, um, good we haven't talked about you radio in a while. That's why I wanted to, you know, give you a, <laughs> a plug there. It's been a while since you mentioned anything about it. Oh, thank you. I, yeah, well, I found, uh, you know, I was used to announce uh, what days it was coming up in the future. And uh, I stopped getting it for some reason. I couldn't get the magazine, couldn't find the magazine that had the, the what food day and what m- month and all that stuff. Well, I got it again for here's, here's one for October. And so I'm today is National Taco Day. I don't know if everybody knows that or not, but they've been they've been talking about it on national news and on local news and everything. National Taco Day and your Taco Bell is giving four tacos for $5 today and there uh, other stuff going on a lot of your local restaurants so if you're listening to this today or before 9 o'clock your local time which is when most of the restaurants close then today's National Taco Day um, have yourself some uh, sangria with your taco that would be good uh, tomorrow National Apple Betty Day uh, pair that with some uh, demeanor. I think that'd be fun. National Noodle Day coming up on Saturday. Sunday, National Frap or Frappy? I don't know. Is the E pronounced? National Frappy Day. And I it, I think that's the coffee drink, the, the Frappy. Now, when I was up in the Boston area, they call a, a shake, like a, a milkshake, they call it a frap up there. And hmm. so when I started to hear frap all over in uh, coffee shops, now I'm thinking, oh, they're serving they're serving a milkshake. But it's not. It's it's a coffee drink. So Sunday, National Frap or Frappy. Uh, Monday, Columbus Day. Uh, and it's also National Fluffernutter Day. And I know what a fluffer nutter is, but I can't think. Uh, the engineer, what's a fluffer nutter? It's a what? Candy. Candy? Oh. Candy. Also, National Pierogi Day is coming up on Monday. Um, 
Some places you can buy pierogies, big stack them. Tuesday, National Moldy Cheese Day. But moldy? Base moldy Cheese Day. Oh, no way. Moldy? Yeah. National it's Moldy Cheese. That's a thing. That's a thing, though. Why would you have a day for molded cheese? Moldy, like, I don't green? Know. Well, well, you know, like some cheese, some cheese has the mold rinds and stuff like that. So maybe it's the cheeses that have the rinds that are, that are mold. I don't know. It's also National Submarine Hoagie Hero Grinder Day. You know, it's the the sandwich day. So that's Tuesday. And Wednesday is National Angel Food Cake Day. Also National Cake Decorating Day and uh, National Stop Bullying Day. So one day all of you bullies need to stop. That's next Wednesday. Next Thursday, National Sausage Pizza Day. So, uh, not just pizza, but Sausage Pizza Day. Now, you know, when you're starting to get specialized like that on on a day for pizza, that, I don't know, do they have a National Pepperoni Pizza Day? Or, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, And then... uh, it's American Cheese Month, October is. Breast Cancer Awareness Month is October. Everyone should know that. They're already promoting that all over. Uh, Rhubarb Month, National Dessert Month, National Pretzel Month, National Pizza Month. Now, they're, they're talking pizza, but then they specialize it on the 11th, next Thursday, uh, Sausage Pizza Day. September and, 20th. Oh, sorry. <laughs> there was oh, a pause in there. Se- September 20th, we already missed it, National Pepperoni Pizza Day. All right. I knew that there had to be. There had to be. Okay. Yeah. And it was Very Thursday. Good. We missed it. And it was Thursday. a Thursday. We missed it. You didn't well, see, I didn't get my list. I'm not, That's yeah. right. And so, therefore, you know, I, I just. That's funny. That's <laughs> we would have had it. We would have had it. That's sad. And then next Thursday is National <laughs> Sausage pizza day. So now, and then National Apple Month is uh, is also in October. And uh, just to catch you all up on this. Let me go through for another couple of weeks here, or something because uh, actually I'm going to be gone, but we're still going to have programs. So don't don't tune out. Right. Pumpkin Pie Day, is, National Gumbo Day, and Pumpkin Pie Day is coming up on the 12th. The 13th National Pumpkin Festival Day, National Peanut Festival Day, National M&M Day, and Yorkshire Pudding Day, all on the 13th. Uh, Busy day there. Wow. Uh, 14th National Dessert Day, the 15th National Cheese Curd Day, and National Mushroom Day is the 15th. World uh, 16th. Is National Liquor Day. And I, you know, I think you have to forego the wine and have the liquor. Seventeenth uh, National Pasta Day. Eighteenth, uh, next Thursday or two, two weeks. Today's for two weeks. National Cupcake Day. Chocolate cupcake, though. I'm sorry, chocolate, not vanilla, not you know, National Chocolate Cupcake Day. Nineteenth National Seafood Bisque Day. Twentieth is the sweetest day. That gives you all sorts of options there for sweets. 21st, National Pumpkin Cheesecake Day. 
Again, we're specializing in cheesecake here. This is pumpkin cheesecake, but it's October. What do we want? 22nd, National Nut Day. 23rd, National Boston Cream Pie Day. Oh, I love Boston Cream Pie. 24th, National Bologna Day. And 25th, which is three weeks from today, is National Greasy Food Day. So uh, there's your there's your menu wines to match up with all those stuff. I'm sure you can find something. So keep that in mind for the for the month there. And you can always refer back to this show on archives if you forget to mark down any of those, and you can say, oh. Today is National Pumpkin Cheesecake Day. I need to open up a bottle of pumpkin wine. And I'm sure there is pumpkin wine out there somewhere. So I don't know who makes it, but I'm sure there is some. So those are our our national days. Got some stuff to tell you here about some... uh, I'm receiving entry forms. Enter now in the TexSOM, International Wine Awards. That's... uh, Coming up, if you are a winery or you know someone who has a winery, submission period is now through December 31st. It's $95 plus $4, four bottles of wine per entry. After the first of the year, it's $105 and four bottles of wine. That's why I say, you know, these, these competitions, we've talked about competitions in the past and how expensive they can be and all that stuff. Uh, here's a good example. You know, the, you have to ship it to them and all that. And uh, has to be shipped, labeled so that they can get them and all. So, uh, but that's the text sum, which doesn't say anything more than that. Text sum. San Francisco International Wine Competition is coming up. Also, this is a, a big, big, big one out on the West Coast. SFWineComp.com. That is uh, on. Uh, do, 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 do. And let's see. I don't see a date. Uh, over a hundred different individual classifications. Sixty-seven judges. Uh, bronze, silver, gold, double gold awards. Select. Double gold winners, uh, sweepstakes round, design competition, uh, all sorts of stuff going on in that. Uh, I don't see a date. Uh, November 17th and 18th, 2018 competition, November 17th through the 19th. So that's almost on top of us here. So if you're in San Francisco and you want to attend that thing, that's those things are fun. I attended one many, many years ago. This thing's been around forever. I attended one many years ago, and they are fun. Uh, the wine competitions and going in, and everybody comes in and sets up, and they talk about wine, wine stuff, and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, really a lot of fun. And then uh, Surrey College, we talked about this once before. Uh, Surrey College and all the stuff they do on that and everything there. That competition is coming up on November the seventh. Of this year, uh, that's only a couple of months, uh, oh, month away. I say a couple of months away. Uh, early registration is over, uh, so you, if we're entering that, but the Surrey competition, North Carolina, North, yeah, North Carolina. So 
those are some things coming up there. And Wine Spectator Critics' Choice Grand Tasting. We mentioned this last year. This is a new one coming up now on October the 18th, Thursday and Friday, October the 19th. And this is almost upon us. Okay, we've only got like uh, two weeks. Uh, you know, two weeks we will have the Wine Spectator Critics' Choice. You can get tickets at nywineexperience.com. It is a, a phenomenal event, actually. 269 of the world's finest wines. They list all the wineries here, which is, you name it, they're pretty much on this list. Uh, just from all over the world. All wines are rated 90+. plus, So we have some phenomenal wines there. No price, but I think it runs like $150 or something. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure even as I talk, might might be going into the site right now. NewYorkWineExperience.com. And, uh, but, uh, is he? Mm. Mm. Uh, yes. New York okay. Wine Experience. Marriott Marquis, October 18th through the 20th. Oh, yeah, okay, through the 20th. This is October 18th and 19th here. Uh, uh, okay. How much? Uh, da, 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 da. Ooh, weekend package. Uh, a three-day wine experience. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, it does. Oh, yeah, the, the complete package, uh, daytime seminars Friday and Saturday, Critics' Choice Grand Tastings Thursday, Friday evening, Wine pairing lunches Friday and Saturday, and grand award banquet and champagne reception is only $2,495. Oh. Um, $2,500. I was just about to grab the credit card. That's right. Yeah. Let me me grab this credit card. This credit card here, it says Ron Hunt. Okay, good. Uh, Usually all about wine. (laughs) Yeah. The, um, now they do have uh, they do have VIP tickets. I don't know if this is oh. in addition to no, no. It just says uh, two nights of tasting, two nights, uh, three and a half hour wine tasting, three and a half hour wine tasting. That's fine. Uh, what month? They have two hundred two hundred sixty nine wines. Yeah, uh, gourmet buffet. Uh, the VIP ticket is uh, four hundred and seventy five dollars. General admission is two and a half hours of wine tasting. Uh, plus all the other, you know, the gourmet uh, buffet and the the rating and everything, three hundred and seventy-five dollars, three seventy-five. That's a little so, bit more reasonable. I mean, you know what? Yeah. How often? The question is, how often would you be able to taste two hundred and sixty-nine of the world's finest wineries? Now, these aren't the wines; these are wineries. So these people aren't just coming over and bringing, "Here's my wine." They're coming over and saying, "These are my wines." So. You know, you can pick and choose. You know, all wines are rated ninety plus. I mean, really, if you think about it, it, it's reasonable if you just want to go in there and you know do the do the tasting and the buffet. That's that's the reasonable way to do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, twenty five hundred for for the weekend. Now that's not including the hotel. So you know, if you're staying at the Marriott Marquis in New York City. Figure a motel for a couple of three nights in there. So, and <laughs> if you're going, to, yeah, and if you're New going York to do all those tastings, 
you, yeah, definitely. Yeah, if you're gonna do all those tastings, you better stay at the motel. So uh, that's right. Yeah, instead of a lot of, easier, uh, and you don't have to drive or anything. You're, you're right there, right. and you yeah, just jump way. on the elevator and fall out of it, and you're that's a four, right. and you know that's that's there it. You? But uh, drag, drag yeah, yourself, it's, drag yourself <laughs> into your room on that. But uh, yeah, twenty five hundred dollars for the whole package, or as cheap as cheap as three hundred fifty dollars. So. Yeah. That's coming up, though. That's only a couple of weeks away. So you can go on there. I'm sure they have a place where you can sign up for it on your website and everything. And mm-hmm. uh, just uh, go from there. Buy tickets now. There you go. Buy them now. Buy so. Yeah, so there you, you have them. Mm. Yeah. Ooh, it makes you shiver. I'm at $2,500. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hmm. Wow. <clears throat> uh, yeah, wow. So, all right, um, a little bit of trivia. Question of the day, what was the first wine associated with luxury? It's tempting to say champagne, but champagne is a relatively recent phenomenon dating from the early 1700s. There were many wines heralded in ancient times. The Romans praised a wine called Falernan. F-A-L-E-R-N-I-A-N. Falling down from the slopes of Monte Masico in the region of Campania. Perhaps the first wine truly associated with luxury was Tokay Azu, the famous Hungarian dessert wine. Tokay Azu was first made in the mid-1600s from grapes infected with the beneficial mode with Tritus scenariae. Uh, the noble rock, as it's been been uh, called, the same mode necessary for the creation of the French salt terms, and also for ice wines. By the way, uh, true ice wines really should have noble rock, which they don't. But you know, in the late 1600s, European nobility drank copious amounts of Tokay, believing it a divine elixir that would prolong life. So. Uh, Tokay, I've had Tokay. It's expensive. It's good. It's very, very sweet, though. Very, very sweet. It's like like honey in a jar. Not quite the consistency, but not that sweet. Another question: What do some? Uh, why do some wineries make proprietary blends, such as Insigna and Rubicon, instead of just making a hundred percent variety of wine, like Cabernet Sauvignon and others? Answer. Wines labeled variety must, by law, be composed of at least 75% of that variety. So a wine labeled Cabernet Sauvignon could be 100% Cabernet Sauvignon or could contain up to 25% of other varieties, such as Merlot or Cabernet Franc. However, winemakers often know that the very best wine they can make is, is some other ratio. Maybe it's 40% Merlot, 39% Cabernet Franc, and 21% Cabernet Sauvignon. If the goal is to blend to the highest possible potential of wine flavor, texture, and personality, then a winemaker's hands can't be tied. Because of this, many winemakers produce so-called proprietary wines. If it does say a, a varietal on it, like Cabernet Sauvignon, most winemakers make it 100%. Seldom, it is very, very seldom will you find wines that 
if they have the name of the grape on it that is not 100% of that grape. That's just, you know, pretty much, if, if it is blended, they'll tell you, but pretty much it's 100%. All right, I'll, a couple more trivias later in the program. Time to tell you what's happening in other wineries around the area, the ones that I get emails from. Innery River. Innery River Winery. Innery River is located in Innery River. Uh, no, they're located in uh, uh, South Carolina. I, I need to call them and ask them how they survived the hurricane. You know, I just it just now dawned on me. I haven't haven't talked to them, and I really should ask them how everything went. Hmm. I'll do that. But. Uh, They've got some stuff. Last chance to pick up some stuff here for uh, October. Things that are ending, that are coming up. Early Bird Festival. Tickets are ending soon. You can buy your tickets online to save discounts in... Um, oh, you just missed it. Discounts in a couple of days ago. Uh, oh, no. I'm sorry. Uh, they're limited to the first 300 tickets now through 9.30. So uh, this is 10, though, so you did miss it. Oh, well, uh, that's early bird tickets. But the Newberry Harvest Festival is coming up, and uh, $30 tickets. Uh, so the 25, the festival one. And uh, cranberry wine is still available also. So let me get out of this and go to, uh, see, I've got a couple other wineries that are, oh, someone's calling in. Wow. How'd they get my home number? I don't know. <laughs> we, don't, we don't take requests on that line. <laughs> we don't take requests on that line. You know, sorry. General um, opposites. Yeah, um, maybe they had going to donate two tickets for you and I to the the uh, Wine Spectator Critics' Choice Grand Tasting. Um, yeah, probably. Don't think that's going to happen. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> but hope springs eternal. <laughs> um, <laughs> coming up on October 13th at Whispering Oaks Winery. This is in Oxford, Florida. Uh, actually, we've all visited there, but they have a pancreatic cancer benefit. It's uh, wine and design is going to be their scooter, the DJ, Fifi's Cakes, and more. It's an evening of appetizers, wine, uh, outstanding amusement, delectable desserts, and a silent auction, all to benefit the pancreatic cancer awareness. This is going to be October 13th, which is uh, next Friday, or next Saturday. Yeah, next Saturday. The tickets are available for the night. Uh, food and entertainment for only $45. And uh, proceeds will benefit pancreatic cancer, so it's not just for them. It's uh, cash or check. You can make checks payable to uh, Pancreatic Cancer Fundraiser uh, for tax deductible purposes. Uh, Jody Brega is the person you're making checks to. 
Swedish meatballs, spinach dip, chips and salsa, cheese and vegetable display on a buffet, bruschetta and spanakopita, I guess I said that right, will be passed on trays, dessert bar, uh, will be compliments of Fifi Cakes and more, plus uh, dancing and fun. Scooter the DJ will be uh, in charge of it. So, uh, good night, uh, good cause, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., Saturday, October the 13th. So, if you're in that area, uh, which is really easy to get to, so, uh, you know, anybody in uh, north central Florida can, you know, from Tampa all the way on up to Gainesville and Ocala and all that, and over to areas of Orlando and all can, you know, it's a, a simple ride. So, uh, good calls if you get an opportunity, do that. Contact www.winesofflorida.com. Uh, and they'll, uh, or you can, or you can call, uh, Jody Bragg is in charge of it, 352-551-8638. So that's, uh, that's happening. Let's see, I thought I had another, another winery here. Whispering Oaks, that's one I just talked about. Hmm. I thought for sure I had another winery that was on my list here. Well, I guess not. Oh, well. All right, so that's... Uh, oh, yeah. All whispering. Oh, here's another Whispering Oaks. This is a, the newest email from Whispering Oaks. I'll give them another quick one on this. New hours are closed on Mondays. Uh, now open 11 to 5 on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Friday and Saturday, 11 to 9. And Sunday, 11 to 5. Uh, they have uh, uh, flatbread. Uh, the let's see, where are we? award-winning wines and ice-cold craft beer from local breweries. And uh, hot and fresh flatbreads will be available. That will be Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, 11.30 to 3. So if you're in that area for luncheon, there you go. Half off flatbreads. So that's also Whispering Oaks Winery. And I think that's it on the wineries. Uh, is it? Yeah, I think so. Uh I noticed a couple of things here. I was I was getting uh, about China, and I, I was trying to figure out what was going on with with stuff with China. Uh, China. Let's see. Is this, yeah, here we go. China Wine and Spirits News (CWSA). I don't know why I got it, but it's cool that I do. China just had their 16th annual or their 15th annual uh, judging. They had a, a, a uh, entry, a, a wine judging there. And the 15th annual one was just announced, and they announced the winners and all that for the uh, judging. Now, they get wines from all over the world. In this, and uh, let's see, here we go. The 
well, I'm not going to download all these and tell you all these, but they have uh, uh, the winners and all that announced in uh, uh, the uh, for the the current one, and then they're also promoting the newest one, which is coming up the 16th annual uh, CWSA Award Best Value is 2019 is coming up. Uh, well, I don't see a date on that. But, uh, oh, here we go. Early bird deadline, October 14th. Sample deadline, uh, November the 4th. So, uh, pretty close to us now if you're a winery or something out there. I was reading this and I find out that South Africa is very, very big in China. South African wines are the number one exporter to China. And South Africa says our future is in China. So I, it just struck me as odd. I thought of lots of other countries, but I never thought South Africa. Leopard's Leap owns four wineries and accounts for 30% of all exports to China. And they're uh, South African for all South. They account for all South African, 30% of all South African exports. But uh, a big, big footprint in China from the uh, uh, South Africa uh, nation there. Uh, and it goes on to tell about that in this article here. If you want to check this out, uh, just go to, and let me see. Uh, cwsa.org yeah I guess it is .org hmm that's odd but cwsa.org and that's the China Wine and Spirits Awards and it's got quite a bit of information there and all sorts of other stuff uh, you can see and if you're in a different language it's got that and all sorts of different stuff because it's China and they try to it says the biggest and most prestigious wine and spirits competition in Hong Kong and China. And since China owns Hong Kong now, that's all the same. All right, moving on. I saw this from, well, actually it's from my container company, the one I used to buy bottles and all sorts of different odds and ends from. They used to furnish uh, different bottles to me. They used to furnish uh, every once in a while. I'd have a special request. They were very good at getting it. They're located in Tampa, so it was very simple for me to go down there and say, hey, I really need these bottles for this or whatever, and they would have it for me. They sent me this email. I'm going to read you the email, just not as a political statement, just to let you know about it. Then I'm going to also... Click on the, uh, the 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 full announcement here, but it said, "Dear value customers, on September 18th, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative (USTR) published the finalized tariff list three and announced the implementation of additional duties on 200 billion dollars worth of annual imports from China." The full announcement can be viewed on USTR.gov here, and they have the thing. Um, or a PDF of the tariff list may also be downloaded if desired. Beginning September 24th, an additional 10% tariff will be imposed on 
5,745 tariff lines from China. This tariff is scheduled to increase to 25% as of January 1st, 2019. As of now, our organization has decided to add an additional 8% increase to the tariff items. They don't say what they are, but it's 8%. Excuse me. We will continue to monitor the situation, both from a supplier standpoint and a tariff policy standpoint, and communicate changes accordingly. Should you have any questions in the meantime, please contact our representatives. This is from All American Containers, um, which headquartered in Miami. Clicking on the link is a link to the Office of the United States Trade Representative. Uh, and it's the headline states just that USTR finalizes tariff on $20 billion of Chinese imports in response to Chinese unfair trade practices. And it tells, it's a very short, I'm not going to read it, but it's very short, uh, one page thing, but it, it goes into it a little bit more. And it also, you can click and find out the view the tariff list, the final tariff list. Now, if, if you're looking at 5,745 items, then I would imagine it would be pages and pages. I haven't clicked on it because I'm not interested, to be honest. But if you're interested in this site, go to USTR.gov. That's USTR.gov. And uh, I'm sure it has all sorts of uh, trade agreements, countries and regions, issue uh, issue areas and stuff like that. And you can follow up. And it's an interesting old site anyway, another one of those government sites that's just fun to look at and uh, just sort of surf around in it, look at some of the stuff and going, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. So, But uh, I just I, I found that companies are already starting to – raise prices because of the tariffs and there's one right there that came in wine bottles and they, they don't make just wine bottles they make bottles for just for everything they, they're very they're bottle people and they get them from all over the world actually so uh, interesting stuff though interesting uh oh here we go i knew there was other series now they pop up This month is Virginia Wine Month's 30th anniversary. October is Virginia Wine Month, and this is their 30th anniversary. 30 years they've been celebrating Virginia Wine Month. Uh, they are having a harvest party in a lot of the wineries. Uh, they are, uh, you can get a hold of virginiawine.org, and they will help you plot an itinerary to get yourself around to the Virginia wines, since it's uh, wineries, this is Virginia Wine Month, and also where to buy Virginia wines and other details. So this Virginia Wine Month, 30th anniversary of Virginia Wine Month. So you can uh, check that out, virginiawine.org, and see just about everything you want to know about Virginia Wine Month there. Tablas Creek Vineyards. Uh, 
the uh, harvest 2018 is at midpoint right now. They are bringing the grapes in. They have uh, weather stations set up all over to see uh, how they're doing on it. And uh, boy, it's where's Tavis Creek located? Let me see. Tavis Creek is located in Sudbury, Massachusetts. So uh, they've got uh, temperatures. This has to be oh September. Oh wow. Uh, daily weather station summary of 26 September 2018. They were getting temperatures over 100 maximum temperatures uh, that occurred in mid-afternoon. I mean, just about every one of 106.8 uh, at uh, th- uh, 2:45 in the afternoon and stuff like that. But then the minimum temperature dropped down uh, in the middle of the night to uh, 44. Uh, and a half degrees. Uh, here's an, another one that's up to 104, and the nighttime temperature dropped down to 46. I am whoa, that's really does concentrate that sugar into the fruit, which is is great. Uh, they're getting a good yield: uh, Voynier, Marsan, Grenache Blanc, Vermentino, Saran, Pinot Noir. Uh, so far this uh, this year. They have 132.1 ton of grape coming in. So it's uh, uh, Tablish Creek. Uh, the harvest is at midpoint, and uh, yield's not as good as last year, but they're outstanding quality because of the temperature variations and all that. And if you want to check that out, uh, you can just go to tablishcreek.com, T-A-B-L-A-S, tablishcreek.com. And check out stuff on that. Keith Joshua Vineyards and Las Vegas Steak Ranch Wine Dinner. That's coming up October 13th, a week from this Saturday. Uh, you need to get your reservations in. Four-course dinner prepared by Las Vegas Steak Ranch Restaurant. And they're going to be at the vineyard serving dinner there. It is uh, all sorts of good stuff. I won't tell you everything because I haven't ate yet, and I'm hungry, and Mike's ate, so he won't care. So, uh, Wilcox Wine Festival is set for October 20th and 21st. Uh, Keith, Joshua Winery, and 18 other Arizona wineries will be at the Wilcox Wine Festival on October 20th and 21st at the Railroad Park in Wilcox. So, uh, 19 wineries, uh, Arizona wineries. That's a cool thing. If you're all in that area, check it out. That's coming up on October 20th and 21st. Whenever a bunch of wineries gather together like that, it is always a good thing and a lot of fun. You can taste a lot of different wines and meet a lot of the winemakers and people and all that. So, uh, this Saturday, the uh, Las Vegas Steak Ranch will be making dinner at the winery and $60 per person, by the way, on that one. Uh, and then the October 20th and 21st, the Wilcox Wine Festival with a bunch of wineries there. Tassel Ridge Winery. Tassel Ridge Winery is located in Iowa. That's tasselridge.com. Uh, they are celebrating National Taco Day today. Uh, if you're in Iowa and listen to this, uh, drive over and check them out. Uh, they've got... Uh, 
uh, upcoming events. They got bistro lunch just about every day. Uh, National Sausage Pizza Day and National Dessert Day will be next week. See, they're on top of that. National Sausage Pizza Day. They knew that. They knew that enough to already schedule that. That's cool. So, um, then they've got all sorts of stuff going on all the time there. So, Tassel Ridge Winery, located in Lytton, Iowa, uh, southeast of Des Moines. And you check out, again, the site at tasselridge.com. And let's see. Uh, Whispering Oaks. I talked about Whispering Oaks and the reservation if you need to get into that. So that's taken care of. And uh, let's see. What's this about Virginia Winery? Uh, again, virginiawine.org. Uh, just another one. Uh, you can sign up for the email. That's what I got here. There was a couple of them. That's why he's checking it out. And let's see. I think that's the ones I wanted to talk to you about on those things. Yes, it is. Okay. Apothic Red. That's one of their topics tonight that we advertise. Oh, time for a little bit of trivia. What are stickies? S-T-I-C-K-I-E. Yes, stickies. Australians call their dessert wines stickies. A reference, of course, to the wine's sweet, sticky on the palate character. Most Australian stickies are made from Riesling, Simeon, or Sauvignon Blanc grapes, and many acquire their sweetness, as French sauternes do, with the help of beneficial mold Botrytis cinerea, the so-called noble rock. Because the climate in most Australian wine regions is fairly warm, all these stickies are generally low in acid, which means they're super creamy, luxurious, and hedonistic, with all kinds of rich apricot and marmalade flavors. They are great nightcaps. Most stickies come in half bottles and are considerably less expensive than French dessert wines. Look for these producers. De Ehrenberg. De Bortoli, Lindemans, Mount Horks, and Wara Wara, W-I-R-R-A, Wara Wara. And, okay, this is, okay, why are wines stored in caves? Natural and man-made caves have been used for thousands of years to store wines. Today, modern caves are dug into the hillsides and below ground, with large machines capable of burrowing into the hardest rock. Unlike an above-ground building, a cave provides aging wines with a cool climate that is virtually consistent throughout the year. In so stable an environment, wines age slowly and gracefully. In addition, a cave's humidity, often as high as 95%, slows evaporation. In fact, the evaporation from a barrel stored in a cave can be five times less than the evaporation from a barrel stored in an above-ground building. Less evaporation means the winery will have more wine to sell. Amazingly, with the revenue they earn from wine not lost into the atmosphere, many wineries pay off the high cost of digging a cave within a few years. So there you go. Um, Apothic Red. Why is Apothic Red so popular? Now I'm going to read you this. 
In fact, I'm going to read you a couple, three things tonight. This one is the shorter one. The other one's going to be a little longer. Then even more sugar. Dried table wine traditionally uh, from about 1980 and earlier had less than two grams per liter of residual sugar. And residual sugar is sugar not fermented into alcohol by by yeast. This is the sugar, the residual, the leftover sugars. In the mid-1990s, yeast factories bred yeast that could survive in higher alcohol wines so they can continue to ferment the wine well past the 14% alcohol mark that was once the highest achievable. But these wines felt terrifically hot on the tongue, and hence a high alcohol wine is referred to as hot. Sugars thicken the viscosity the balance and balance the acidity of wine and hide the alcohol from the tongue. Suddenly, all the red wines on the shelf were 14% alcohol with 6 grams per liter of residual sugar. The other thing the yeast provides is secondary aromas of the uh, exotic fruit flavors, particularly. Uh, malolactose fermentation, or bacteria fermentation, turns harder malic acid into creamer lactic acid. And this is uh, what's very palatable to novice wine drinkers. So by the 2000, wines were becoming thicker, less apparently acidic, and sweeter. The last problem was tannins. Initially, California ate Bordeaux as the all-time best wine, but Bordeaux is built to age for two decades in the bottle, so the tannin molecules are quite short and abrasive when they go into the bottle. People who were buying Cabernet Sauvignon on release, two years old, and were getting tired of the rough, abrasive tannins. They were shifting in droves to grapes that provided longer chain tannins, for example, Pinot Noirs, without a decade of aging. That's why Pinot Noirs seem so much softer, because there's a different type of uh, longer tannin. The winemakers responded by racking, uh, which means pouring the wine up from one barrel to another or pumping it around on top of it frequently to aerate and lengthen the tannins or soften the tannins when they become lengthened. About then, the Gallo Brain Trust realized that if you connected the above DOS, the logical conclusion was a thick, sweet, non-acidic wine with no apparent tannins. The crash of 08 gave them their opportunity. Sundry Venter loans were called and they couldn't afford to hold inventory. So the Gallows bought Zimindel, always a crowd favorite because of the exceptionally high alcohol and low acidity. They also bought Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot inventories for pennies. As a side note here, this was about the time that Barefoot was formed. And if you go back and listen to the episode, they'll tell you how they had a whole bunch of fermented grapes real cheap and the people kind of pay off their loans, so they inherited this wine. Or you can buy their book, uh, The Barefoot Story and all that. All very interesting, by the way, but it happened around the same time. They bought the highest alcohol wine in all markets, which theoretically should have been the lowest sugar, but... 
ripe Zen can be both very high alcohol and very high residual sugars. Many people theorize that the gallows added sugar, although I believe the gallows deny it. Net result, a monster wine that is at best off-dry and really should be identified as semi-sweet. No apparent acidity, no smooth visco- a nice smooth viscosity, and an alcohol content of 15%. People who couldn't drink dry wine suddenly could have those big elegant glasses on the table as they drank what is essentially a vermouth, less the added herbs. Incredibly, the Gallows, no fool's day, also priced the wine 20% higher than the mass market wines. This added even more perceived quality to the mass market consumer. The stuff sold like ice cubes in a heat wave. The gallows were even richer. The punchers thought they were connoisseurs. Everybody was happy. Today, since about 2015, traditional, dry, expensive table wine from California is now running around 10 grams a liter residual sugar and higher. The wine spectator cheers it on awarding massive scores like the 94 gave Maomi, a Pinot Noir version of the Apothic recipe. They applaud Helen Turley, who insists on grapes being picked at 28 bricks or higher, who makes wines at 17% alcohol. Give the people what they want, then give them even more of it. Apothic Red. There's a little story behind the Apothic Red and why what you're drinking out there is higher alcohol, but it's also tends to be a little bit sweeter because, hey, people want it. And you go with the crowd. All right, I got something else to reach here. This is longer, and it's going to go past our hour, but I don't care because this is interesting. I've been talking about this. Excuse me. I had to get a drink of tea. I'm drinking some iced tea tonight. I've been talking about this for the last two or three weeks, a month, and I was going to read it and paraphrase it to you, and then I read it, and I read it again, and I said, I'm not going to paraphrase this. This is too interesting to try to break this out into points. So I'm going to read this to you, and it's it's really, I, I thought it was quite interesting. I hope you agree with me, because I'm going to take up your time on reading this, but Here we go. The TTB labeling. This is a brief history. The TTB has struggled over the years to provide consumers with useful information while balancing the needs of beverage producers. This was just posted last month, actually, so it's reached me a new article. Our month for last. This is October now. If author Franz Kafka had set out to create a set of rules governing the manufacture and sell of alcoholic beverages, he could not, in his wildest dreams, have came up with anything more Byzantine than the existing regulations created by the Federal Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, the TTB. To be fair, the agency has a vast and complex mandate. It's equally true that the TTB's rules, conceived in large part at the time in America's history when the public's interests were different than they are today, may not always always well serve modern consumers. Case in point, 
the rule for beverage labels, specifically as they relate to the presence of alcohol. Repel and the ABV debate. One of the great national movements of the 19th and early 20th century America was the crusade for the elimination of alcoholic beverages. It wasn't really alcohol per se that a proponent disapproved of, but intoxication and the evils it uh, engendered. Crime, domestic violence, poverty, and other social ills. It took some 100 years of agitating, but by the end of World War I, a significant portion of the American population was ready for drastic action, resulting in the passage of the 18th Amendment to the Constitution prohibiting the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquor. The amendments implementing legislation, the National Prohibition Act, also known as the Volstead Act, defined intoxicating liquor as basically anything um, possessing more than one-half of 1% of alcohol by volume, or ABV. Curiously, Congress included a section in the Volstead Act that seemed to provide a bit of a legal loophole for the thirsty people with a little space in his or her cellar for a barrel. Reading, in part, quote, the penalties provided in this act shall not apply to a person for manufacturing non-intoxicating cider and fruit juices exclusively for use in his home, end quote. Nowhere did Congress define just what non-intoxicating actually meant. The inevitable court cases testing the limits of Section 29 followed, and juries always found that whatever homemade wine or cider was involved was non-intoxicating in fact, although undoubtedly the drinks contained some amount of alcohol. Beer drinkers didn't get a break but at least the group uh, the grape industry could still sell enough produce to amateur winemakers to keep the wolf from the door. Efforts to modify the Volstead Act's definition of intoxicating liquor to conform with non-intoxicating, in fact, standard went nowhere, however. The debates as to what amount of alcohol was or wasn't intoxicating continued well into the 1930s passed the repeal of the 18th Amendment and nullification of the Volstead Act. While the social goods that had been promised by the temperance movement had not emerged, drunkenness was still considered a great moral evil throughout the country. So most winemakers and brewers were anxious to distance themselves from anything that might tend to associate their product with intemperance. Beer and wine industry representatives found their way to Washington, D.C. to testify before the various congressional committees tasked with drafting the laws that would govern alcohol businesses going forward. Each and everybody pointed out that whatever drinks their constituents were making were really a food, unlike distilled spirits, were mostly consumed with a meal and that Everyone knows that drinking wine or beer with a meal 
would not result in intoxication. The transcripts of the committee meetings make for fascinating reading. Excerpts include, point, quote, there is a great difference between whether or not a drink is intoxicating or non-intoxicating according to the way it is used. You do not have intoxication if you drink with your meals, end quote. Next point, quote, as regards a 10% wine, the amount taken with food certainly falls far below any effect that can be defined as intoxicating, end quote. And then next point, all legislative treatment should bear in mind that wine is a food product, not to be classified or legislatively treated as intoxicating liquors. End quote. I love that. Wine is food. Everyone involved seems to have wanted whatever was to appear on a beer or wine label to reflect this point of view. Consumer clarity or confusion. The regulations regarding beverage labels were, in theory, driven by providing essential information to the consumer. Joseph H. Schott, Jr., director of the Federal Alcohol Control Administration, in testimony before the House Ways and Means Committee in 1935, put it this way, quote, they should not be confined as the pure food regulations have been confined to prohibitions of falsity, but they should also provide for the information of the consumer that he should be told what was in the bottle and all the important factors which were of interest to him about what was in the bottle. End quote. And he talks like a like a, a government man. One can argue though that the emphasis on distancing certain alcohol-containing beverages from those that are or might be intoxicating most certainly had an impact on the regulations as finally drafted, some of which prove to be problematic today as the nation's concern with intemperance is softened, at least in the sense that ordinary moderate drinking is not immediately seen as a moral failure. Labeling rules then and now treat malt beverages and wines quite differently. In the case of malt beverages, the overriding concern was that consumers not be confronted with statements relating to alcohol content on the theory that if they knew that one beer had more alcohol than another, they would inevitably choose the more boozy one. Malt beverages should not be sold on the basis of alcoholic content, said the section of labeling from a report published by the House Ways and Means Committee regarding the legislation that eventually became the Federal Alcohol Administration Act. Thus, an all indication of alcohol content on beer labels was strictly forbidden, as were words like strong, high strength, and high test. This prohibition remained intact until 1987. The Coors Brewing Company filed a lawsuit against the federal government claiming that forbidding them to put ABVs on their labels was a violation of their rights under the First Amendment. Coors won, and the Justice Department appealed the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
using virtually the same arguments made in the 1930s. The government lost, and the regulations were amended to let breweries add ABV information to their labels if they wanted to. Okay, now this is as an aside now. Technically, beer doesn't have to have the amount of alcohol that's in the can. It is, it's really, as far as I understand, I followed up on this, I looked, and they do not have to have the amount of alcohol listed, uh, ABV, alcohol by volume. I don't know. Wine label regulations take a different approach. Wines are defined in the FAA Act as fermented beverages made from agricultural products, essentially fruits, between 7% and 24% ABV. The labeling regulations break down wines into two subcategories. Wines over 14%, which must state their ABV, and wines under which are allowed but not required to include alcohol content. This distinction comes directly out of the 1930s testimony that under 7% a wine was unstable and that one could only reach an ABV above 14 if it was fortified with spirits. The first group, touted as being non-intoxicating table wine, was particularly interested in distancing their products from intoxicating liquors. They lobbied successfully to prohibit putting anything on a label which tends to create the impression that a wine contains distilled spirits or has intoxicating qualities, regardless of what actually is in the bottle. As desirable as it seemed at the time, this broad restriction has came to haunt modern companies and deprive consumers of information that may, in fact, be important to them. If you notice, all of them do list their ABV. Fortified facts. One example is wines and ciders aged in spirits barrels. It's an old practice, and as modern consumers' interest in spirits has grown, more cider makers and a few winemakers have wanted to highlight their use, particularly as the flavor of the spirit often adds an extra dimension to the beverage's flavor profile, although rarely much, if any, additional alcohol. A number of wine companies have somehow convinced the TTB to issue them labels stating that the contents are, for instance, bourbon barrel-aged, such as Fetcher Vineyard's 1,000 Stories brand, but cider companies are routinely given label rejections by the TTB, citing the prohibitions of the original law, uh, 27 CFR. This result is made slightly more absurd by the fact that ciders under 7% ABV and therefore outside the TTB's Purview fall under the regulations written and enforced by the Food and Drug Administration, which takes no issue with the mention of intoxicating spirits and is quite content to have statements about spirits barrels on labels. Furthermore, beer labels may create the impression that the beer contains distilled spirits as long as they don't do so falsely and the alcohol added doesn't exceed a certain percent of the total. 
so brewers have been including spirits barrel aging on labels for many years. Fortified wines have also been significantly impacted by the rules limiting any mention of spirits. This class of wine commanded a higher percentage of the market in the 1930s and was often associated, rightly or wrongly, with the bums of Skid Row. While the wine lobby couldn't make quite the same arguments about fortified wines being food and their alcohol of no consequence, it still wanted to distance them from any stain of association with intoxicating liquors. Thus, they successfully sought to eliminate the use of the word fortified on labels, as that word was too closely associated with the reality that the alcohol content in these wines was boosted by the addition of distilled spirits. Instead, they would be dessert or sweet wines, and producers could label them with the well-known names of port, sherry, Madeira, etc. This was all good and well for a while. In 2006, actually March 14, 2006 was after date, the United States entered into a treaty with the European Commission, which is an arm of the European Union responsible for proposing legislation, implementing decisions, upholding EU treaties, and in managing the day-to-day business of the EU, where it was agreed that U.S. producers would no longer be granted labels bearing the names of what were now considered semi-geographic designations where it was agreed the U.S. producers would no longer be granted labels bearing the names of... No, lost my place. Of were now considered semi-graphic destinations. This, now, that's ports and sherries and Madeira, and, and there's quite a few of them on this. There's like 20 names, 25 names on that list that they can't. This dramatic change left the fortified wine industry in a quandary. While labels approved prior to 2006 would be grandfathered in, how could producers now find language to adequately describe what they were selling and distinguish their wines from other dessert wines, such as ice wine, that aren't fortified? In January 2012, the Sweet and Fortified Wine Association a California-based trade group, filed a formal petition with the TTP that would amend 27 CFR, that's the uh, law again, and let labels for these types of wines include the word fortified and or the phrase grape or wine spirits added. It has been a long six years, but the trade group's executive director, Kenneth Young, was recently told that draft regulations have been completed and were ready for publication in the Federal Register. Although when that might happen is unclear, as is whether or not the TTB has accepted the language the association proposed. Young said, we know there's going to be some kind of change. We just don't know what it's going to be as always the government. And again, you know, I, I've mentioned before, what are we going to call sherries and ports and all that stuff now? This is uh, it's always been an issue since 2006 that 
you can't call them that. And uh, I've brought this up on the show before, and I've gotten emails from people with suggestions. And I always tell people at the wine range, tell them all the time to come up with it. And I've gotten different suggestions, but we're still in a quandary uh, how to make it universal. What's in a bottle? Lost in the middle of all of this is the consumer, the person deserving Mr. Choate's all the important factors which were of interest to him about what was in the bottle. It's time, perhaps, for a thorough reconsideration of these limiting regulations. Best said by now-retired Justice Paul Stevens in his concurring opinion in the Coors Supreme Court case. Quote, any interest in restricting the flow of accurate information because of the perceived danger of that knowledge is anathema to the First Amendment. More speech and a better informed citizenry are among the central goals of the free speech clause. <coughs> Excuse me. Accordingly, the Constitution is the most skeptical of supposed state interests that seek to keep people in the dark for what the government believes to be their own good. That's a quote from Justice Paul Stevens. So there you go. That's I, I just like to say I didn't want to paraphrase that because that was just too bloody interesting without it. Uh, a lot of stuff there, uh, 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 you know, about the alcohol and things that we don't. When we look at a label and we look at what the stuff is all about and what they're, what they're saying, all that, a lot of times we don't realize all the stuff that goes into that. We don't realize what is happening behind the scenes to come up with those numbers and why we, they have to put that on there and why they're doing it. And uh, this is interesting article along that line to explain a little bit of it and how we got to the numbers we are and how, why, we're, why we're at uh, those different things on, uh, you know, on the labels. No. So a uh, couple quick more trivia here before we, uh, say goodnight, a couple quick questions. Where does softness in wine come from? Softness comes from ripeness. In general, the more mature the grapes are when they are harvested, the softer the wine will fill on the palate. That's because complete ripeness leads to mature tannins, and the more mature the tannins are, the less astringent and softer the wine will feel. That's why it's so critical when they harvest. And... In terms of acreage, which grape variety is the leading one in Bordeaux? Merlot is the answer, with Cabernet coming in, Cabernet Sauvignon coming in second. And there we go. Wow. Um, I did look up earlier uh, that uh, if you live in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, or Michigan, you can find a special pumpkin wine from oh, really? Three Lakes. Yeah, Three Lakes Winery. Uh, it has made a uh, special pumpkin wine. It's uh, like twelve ninety five per bottle. Um, also, Three Lakes Winery. Uh, let's see, what was this? I uh, just messed it. Not the only ones. We've talked to these people. South Dakota's Prairie Berry Winery. Prairie Berry, yeah. Yeah. They make a very special pumpkin wine blended with tart cranberries called Pumpkin Bog. Uh, ah. And they harvest uh, pumpkins every fall before freezing them until it's time to make the pumpkin wine. Ah. And 
The uh, California Fruit Wine Company also makes its own pumpkin-inspired drink. It's called Pumpkin Spice Wine, and it has an 11% alcohol by volume. Oh. That is that is what I pulled up. So uh, oh, Very yeah, good. Just, yeah. We were talking about that earlier, so I was like, eh, I got yeah, all my browser sure. ready to go. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's pumpkin wine out there. Interesting. And there are pump- I knew there had to be pumpkin wines out there. You know, and Prairie Berry, Prairie Berry makes like a zillion different types of wine. If you want a flavored wine, Prairie Berry. Yeah. The guy said, "Oh, y'all, I make everything," and he does. I mean, you know, it's just you know, it's, it's unbelievable. Him and Reed Livery and Winery uh, makes like you know fifty different types of wines. Also, those two are just. Unbelievable. So if you if you want any type of flavored wine, just get a hold of either one of those two, and I guarantee you that the, they will have it. You know, it's, so well, very good, very good. And we do yeah. have pumpkin yeah, wines out there. So I saw, I saw their name out there, and I thought, hey, we've talked to Prairie Berry before, so uh, yeah, long time ago. Yeah, they were on there. Yeah, we were covering the state. So yeah, very good. Um, okay, next uh, we'll be back. Well, yeah, we'll kind of be back next Thursday, but. Uh, um, It'll be a uh, a show from the past, and uh, I am working on those now. So, uh, but it'll be uh, it'll be good. So, um, we'll see it'll be it, it, it will be the haunted mm-hmm. theme of the, October. Uh, we we did we did those you know for a number of years there, and I got off track of it. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, I'll be out of town. Uh, but Mike's going to be putting up some for a couple of weeks, putting up some past. Yeah. Shows and you know, we'll, get, we'll get into the uh, spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, don't call in next week though. If you have a question, don't call no. in the next two weeks. You know, email us or something, no. but don't call in. Yeah, yeah. And so it'll be the shows. Neither one of us will be standing by. I mean, you know, in, no. Yeah. So <laughs> no. All right. So <laughs> no, uh, very good. So uh, the next two weeks, yeah, it'll be uh, we'll go be going into the uh, Halloween mode uh, for for two shows, and then uh, we'll be back definitely live on uh, October 25th. Wow, oh, yes. the end of October comes. End of uh, October. So wow, that'll be our next next fully live show. So awesome. Uh, so well, so good. you have a good trip, and we'll see you, well, uh, thank you. on the 25th uh, live yeah, well. and. Uh, Stay tuned to Skype or Skype. God, all about wine. Yeah. Well, you can also tune in Skype too. You know, Sky Blue Radio. There you go. Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know why that came out. If you just if you just want to hear Mike's voice and you miss it, then next two weeks tune in early. Yeah. How does that happen? I have Blog Talk Radio on the screen. Nothing on here with the other place, and I mentioned yeah, what we were talking about. Wow, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> have a good uh, Ron. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a good trip up there and um, enjoy it. Thank you. And be safe. And we'll be back oh, live on the twenty fifth. But uh, next week, next two weeks, we'll still have shows. So uh, thanks yeah, for tuning you know, in. And uh, drink responsibly. Be safe out there. And we'll see you yeah. in three weeks. And, and, and it's Virginia Wine Month, so enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll just yeah add that there in. you go. All right. Thank you. Bye. All right. Thank you. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. 
Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine.